Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. We are taking back the controls, not to restore order, but to promote chaos. Unpredictable human creativity is not the problem, but the solution. Join the party, find the others, throw off the yoke of surveillance and manipulation, and celebrate the quirky, anomalous behaviors and approaches that make real people so much more than robots, algorithms, or consumer profiles. You are not a number, you are a human being. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Stocco Troncoso of the P2P Foundation. The Commons is the glue because it talks about hacking, it talks about open source, it talks about the environment, it talks about distribution, it talks about welfare that goes beyond laborism, it talks about enfranchising everyone. Stocco will be sharing the power of the Commons and showing us how we can make the transition out of the crisis of capitalism. I've been watching uh, the Trump administration's denials of Russian collusion lately, in spite of the fact that, oh, this one talked to that Russian, and this one talked to that Russian, and these emails with this Russian weren't acknowledged, and those ones were destroyed. and, And I started to think, it seems to me really un-Trumpian for Trump to deny collusion with the Russians. That the Donald Trump that I've come to expect, I'm not going to say admire or anything like that, but expect is the one who would say, so what? So what? I talked to the Russians. I talked to the Russians. And the reason I did was because I realized that we had to win the presidency by any means 
necessary. That America was being choked by this neoliberal internationalist conspiracy of George Soros and Hillary Clinton and all of this evil, horrible, elitist stuff. And nothing short of a nonviolent revolution could wrest power from these usurpers, these anti-American, communist, elitist, socialist, anarchist, Jewish, racial people. And if you're in a by any means necessary social struggle of the lower working classes against America's elite, then why not work with the Russians to do that, or the French or the Canadians or anybody else who's going to help. I feel like if if he took that sort of approach, in some ways, it's no less bizarre than anything else he said. And our our courts have been, you know, so impotent at at doing anything about this administration and the, the all the various miscarriages of justice, I don't see how they'd even do anything with that. You know, it's where we are so um, untethered that it seems to me like the the kind of the reality show style confession, you know, with those scenes between the scenes where they're just sitting on a stool and saying what they're really thinking, where Amorosa would say how she's cheating against the other contestants on The Apprentice or one of those moments. It seems like that's an appropriate Trump moment. And at least it's consistent with everything else that this guy is doing. The sad part of this whole Russia story is how easily the media is distracted by it. Not that it's not important. It is a big deal. And yeah, this was terrible, the Russian collusion or the interference in the election. But while our news media, while MSNBC and CNN and The Times and everyone is all you know up in arms about each latest Russia revelation... You know what's happening to the court systems? You know, it's more than it's like 95% of the justices that have been appointed by Trump are white white men. And they're they're appointing judges and uh, and attorneys, attorneys general and such, who are are uh the craziest kind of unqualified Trump supporters that that in the background in the real government story is something that's happening that's so much more dangerous long term. If you want to depend on the courts to be the sort of the last backstop against some kind of tyranny, well, just look at who's being put in the courts. Look at you're going to you're going to we're going to get to the place really shortly where most of us are going to be selecting for jury trials rather than judge trials because we're going to think at least we stand uh, slightly uh, slightly more of a chance of of getting somewhere. But I'm uh, uh, I'm officially tired of the Russia story. And I really do believe that when push comes to shove and when all the revelations come out, Trump will pull the final Trump card out and say, yeah, well, so what? And then we'll be back where we started. Only we'll have however many hundred more justices and 
environmental setbacks and tax rules reversed and uh, Obamacare gone, which are the things that are actually going to matter to us a whole lot more than whether and how Trump's people worked with the Russians as opposed to the Russians just working with uh, other uh, Americans who wanted Trump in office. It's almost immaterial, especially because he could as easily take credit for it and remain in exactly the same place. and I'm on Team Human. I'm Nikki Silvestri, and I'm on Team Human. My name's Aaron Barnes, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Sylvia Zia, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Esteban Kelly, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human, our guest today, from the P2P Foundation, Stocco Troncoso. Stocco, there's so much to talk about, but let's start at the beginning for the uh, uh, people mm-hmm. who don't know anything about about peer to peer foundation. So, well, before you encountered uh, Michelle Bollins mm-hmm. and peer to peer foundation, what sort of what path took you in that mm-hmm. direction to sort of realize that there was a new movement of bottom up, connected, circular, economic, democratic, and cultural principles that we should espouse and and amplify? Well, I think that, like many people, I was looking for something similar, maybe at a more emotional than an intellectual level. Professionally, I was a translator. I did fine arts. I'm a fine arts dropout, which is, um, (laughs) out of all the careers, not only did I do, like, the most useless one, but I actually dropped out. But then being bilingual, I decided I will become a translator. So I was a translator for many years, and I read up on anarchism, Kropotkin, Bakunin, still really close to me. And you were translating what, all that kind of stuff? No, into? I was not translating all that kind of stuff. I was translating Walkout Texas Ranger and like stupid TV shows. I actually did translate a bit of Ken Loach back in the day, and that was good. But no, my translation didn't have to do much with my ideology. And I didn't feel all that comfortable in like in self-organized spaces in Spain, squats and stuff. You know, like from, from reading Kropotkin to like going to like, hey, let me meet some anarchists. And... I wasn't there all the way, and then 15M came along. And for those not familiar with it, 15M is um, sometimes branded as the Spanish precursor to Occupy. So you have this timeline from the end of 2010 and the Arab Spring to 15M, which was an an occupation of public squares, which self-replicated really quickly, which was very much based on peer-to-peer principles. There was a lot of um, people coming from feminism, from hacktivism, people that just wanted you know, to fight austerity, etc. They all got together in this space. And I was working a lot back then, so I didn't get to go all that much. But when I went there, it's like, wow, this is real. I got like massive goosebumps. This is a real temporary autonomous zone. Like I am living it. This is this is this is what's happening. And when you go, what is it? Is it an outdoor town square, or is it a yeah, yeah? I mean, and they were staying not, there for days on end. It's not. Uh, it's not there anymore. But I mean, think of Sukoti. It was really similar. It was replicated in most of the main plazas, the squares in Spain. But there was one different. Fifteen um, M decided to disband. Okay, they abandoned the squares voluntarily. They were not evicted. They tried to to evict them, you know, several times. But they, they decided, or we decided, to go into neighborhood assemblies. So you can see this, like, aim towards decent, decentralization. 
And it also kind of changes the narrative because it's, it's a bit like the out of war. If Occupy is characterized as being dead, and my argument is that it was killed by force, there's a really graphic image of, you know, like the cops with the batons, like, you know, like pushing people aside. But in Spain, we kind of like dissolved into the neighborhood and kind of like blended into the background. And kept going, though, in a different and form. Kept, and kept going in a different form. And this is, this is something that I like to argue to people that say, you know, like, Occupy is dead. It's like, yeah, but most of those people are not dead. And maybe Occupy changed their lives. And maybe what they're doing now was seeded over there. And you see things like the, the Sanders campaign or like Corbyn, etc., which are more like institutional manifestations of that. And the most interesting institutional manifestation happened in the cities in Spain, in Madrid and Barcelona, frustrated with the glass ceilings of institutional politics, not listening to what was happening in the street. They decided to make what they call instrumental parties, not professional politics so much, but people getting together. And, you know, they had like people from like the Pirates, the Greens, the Trotskyists, like everyone getting together into this platform. And they actually won. And here's the incredible thing, because you hear like, oh, you know, like maybe the Pirates, they'll win or like we celebrate like Corbyn. Yeah, Corbyn, but Corbyn came second. Okay, this guy's actually won the elections in the most important cities in Spain. And that was because there was a protest movement that kept going, even if it wasn't totally visible to the media. I think there's still this thought that, you know, politics has to be simplified. You need to have, like, this big macho figure that's going to, you know, like, fight it out with the bad guys. And what the elections at the local level show is that people can deal with complexity. People can deal with platforms composed of several stakeholders. People can deal with things like participatory budgeting and still get to win an election. So those are interesting things to think about, not just in what happened in Spain, but what can happen elsewhere. So it's not that the uh, hardcore Zuccotti-like activists sold out and became more, uh, you know, commercial. But on the other hand, in some ways, what you're saying is that the popularization of these ideas and processes is not a watering down, but is a, it's a diffusion tactic really so you have to think about it in two ways so we have like i call this like the sugar cube analogy okay so we have all these people in plaza del sol in sukoti and hey the cameras are there the media is there is this good is this bad i don't know it's interesting they're there it's an object it's solid so this is like a sugar cube but if i drop my sugar cube in your cup of coffee it disappears oh occupy is dead you know this doesn't happen anymore but when you drink the coffee it's like whoa there's something else it's sweet we're talking about inequality um, Thomas Piketty's capital gets to like number one in the Amazon charts. We have, you know, and, and maybe anti-capitalist Pope. I don't know. There's like all these background mm-hmm. threads. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that all of this was because of Occupy, but Occupy or 15M happened because of something. And it's not just a reaction against neoliberalism. I think it goes beyond that. And that's where it ties to the commons and to other self-organized practices. In the political sphere... They didn't sell out, but of course people do accuse some of them of selling out. What the, and these are my friends, and they're working like 60 hours or like 80 hours a week. Um, they actually cut their salary, which makes people recognize them as, hey, these people are representing us. They're not people getting paid to pretend that they, that they represent us. And they just have like a lot of problems because um, even if they took power in the cities, national law and the European Union laws prevent them from doing a lot of the things that they want to do. So they're not having an easy time, but I think they did the right thing. So, so then one, one thing you said that interests me, particularly right now, when uh, so many Americans are feeling obligated to, uh, to form an opposition, hmm. 
you were suggesting that the power of these movements was less their opposition to neoliberalism than their their endorsement of something else. Mm-hmm. You know, so you it's it's a very positive context that you're yeah. that you're explaining. So what is it that's energizing it if it's not you know resistance? to mm. neoliberalism. It's the acceptance or the promotion of something else. It's not a dichotomy. I will backtrack and I will say that a lot of the popular support did come from resistance to neoliberalism, even if it wasn't recognized as such, or like austerity, which is like the, the, the closest thing. But a lot of the more active people, again, they were coming from hacktivism, they were coming from, from the art world, they were coming from the feminist movements, they were coming from, from anarchism, from a lot of like self-organized projects that suddenly found each other and they were forced in this physical space to talk to each other. And it wasn't a homogenous movement, which I think it's okay. That's perfectly okay. And it was contradictory, which I think is a more realistic proposition than many things. And what we analyze is um, that it was very much a commons. So a commons understood as a, as a gift or resource organized by a community according to the principles of the community. So movements like Occupy and 15M is like, okay, so Adbuster says like this is Occupy and then we baptize it as such. 15M was because it was on the 15th of May and then it was called Indignados. But like the media kind of like gives you an identity and you forge your own identity. And the Holonic movements, there's like little lots of like micro groups with different interests, with different specialities, etc. And then there's this evolution that you see, you know, like going into politics and what I'm really interested in, it's how it's permeated culture. How it's permeated culture in ways that I think that are lasting. And if we go back to the sugar cube, like maybe there's some chemical process where we can extract the sugar and make it visible again and then put it somewhere else, etc. Right. Make the world sweeter. <laughs> so you uh, you were doing this work, watching this stuff, being excited hmm. and enthusiastic, obviously, about yeah. these movements. And then... What, did you you did you already know about the P2P Foundation at that point, or how did you get involved with Michelle and, I, and this work? I didn't. Um, the first time I had read an essay of him, shareable in 2012, and I was really impressed. But then in 2013, Michelle turned up in Spain, and I said, "Hey, I got um, I got to meet this guy. I'm going to read up." And without being so familiar with his work, um, he was giving a presentation in Tabacalera, which is a self-organized space. And I turned up and I say, hey, man, I'm going to be your simultaneous translator. He said, okay. So <laughs> we hit it off. And around that time, Anne-Marie Utrechtel, my partner, and I, um, we founded a translation co-op called Guerrilla Translation, which was based on many of the principles that P2P Foundation and Michelle Bowens were talking about, but no one was doing together in one place. We started volunteering pretty heavily for P2P Foundation. And eventually... Now we work full-time on Maria and I for P2P Foundation, even though Guerrilla Translation is still going. P2P by nature is based on communities. And not only does it harness the power of communities, but it actively creates new communities at higher levels of complexity. A common transition means developing a set of policies that put common in the social production of value at the center of a market of bureaucratic considerations. It takes the creative inputs of communities and the needs of their environments to create policies. A commons always has three components. A resource, one, the community that's gathered around the resource and the protocols to govern this resource. 
The way that we look at peer-to-peer, -peer, we like to define it not in such a technological way as most people understand it, but we say that it's person-to-person, people-to-people, peer-to-peer. And then how would you describe what P2P Foundation does? Because it's tricky. For most of us, P2P Foundation is this giant wiki of pretty much every peer-to-peer -peer thing. You go to, uh, what, p2pfoundation.org, yeah. and you click on wiki, and then there's, you know, what are all the platform cooperatives out there? Who yeah. is it that's written about this? Yeah. And how do we do uh, uh, soil reclamation? I mean, yeah. pretty much every sort of... Um, there's sort of an overlap with shareable, you know, and we yeah. had uh, uh, shareable here of just sort of all of the peer-to-peer wiki-like activities out there. Yeah. Um, but it's more than that. It's more than it's more than a a static list of stuff. Yeah, it's this generative creative blob that has some spikier and more easily definable outlets, like for example the wiki. I think that we're up to like thirty thousand articles. We have our daily blog, which is a newspaper of the other story, because you've got the mainstream press, and then you've got stuff like, I don't know, like Jacobin, etc., and they give their version. But it's like, hey, like the commons does exist, and there's all these people doing all these things, and this is another reality that we'd like to bring to the foreground. So, so you see that on the blog. And we've got various projects. Um, I'll answer your question from the personal level, you know, like coming back to this narrative. When I started digging into like this wiki, which, which is like this massive thing, is like, where do you start? And I got it, I thought, oh my God, like what this guy, what this Michelle Bowens is writing about, it's got everything that I want. Because back then I was I was reading about peak oil and I was really freaked out. Well, I'm still am and about environmental degradation, but I was reading about hacking and the possibilities of digital democracy, and I was excited by that. But it's like these guys that are aware of resource scarcity and environmental limits, they're not talking to the hackers. And the hackers in the extremes, you have like the techno utopians, etc. If you go to the environmentalists, you have like the Guy McPhersons and the near-term extinctionists. I think you spoke about this in your book, like Apocalypto. Mm -hmm. And when I started reading P2P Foundation, it's like, well, this system is conscious of the scarcity that we have of resources, of the way that we're ravaging the planet, and also of the possibilities of digital networks. And that was a narrative that struck me as being realistic, as being practical. So for me, it was like, okay, this is what I need to do. And this is what a lot of people need to do. Doesn't matter if it's P2P Foundation, if it's another organization, etc. It's like let's advocate for these ideas. Let's bring this narrative forward as something possible and something that's actually based on existing practices. And let's have a conversation. How can we crystallize this at higher levels of complexity? How can we make a, a movement out of this? And that's because this thing needs to happen at, at in some way at scale. It needs to happen bigger than just everyone in their own communities figuring out their little common solutions. Yeah. Um, I, I do have a problem with the, with the world scale. I know, such, I such a too. commercial term, but like scale is like, okay, so we take this thing and we don't examine what it does and we just make it Boom. bigger. Yeah. And that's the mentality of colonialism. And that's the mentality of like, okay, we'll just like ravage everything. So I do prefer to use the word crystallize or if, I don't know if you want to use like... Or distribute or something. Or federate, but, yeah. But when you say, you know, so... so I mean, we could live in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion without the internet, yeah. without these networks. But P2P Foundation is sort of seeing a way to bring these technologies together with uh, retrieving the real peer-to-peer -peer values of probably pre, 
uh, pre-colonialism or pre-Renaissance yeah. era. Yeah, I mean, the commons is the de facto mode of social production, I would say. I mean, Marx spoke about this, you know, with primitive communism, etc. But just, just, just going but to the, the commons, commons... was around long before Marx. Yeah, exactly. But when he refers to primitive communism, maybe we right. can, you know, and hunter-gatherer societies, etc. But, like, even in... I mean, in agricultural societies, I mean, in feudalism, as you well know, like, commoning has been very present, and it's been very present under capitalism, too. The thing is that capitalism doesn't recognize it, because capitalism, when capitalism sees a resource, it's like, okay, it will be managed by the market, or maybe it will be mediated by the state, but never let it be managed so that the people are actually affected by that resource for, for future generations. Um, what P2P does is scale up small group dynamics. So we go beyond post-Dunbar scenarios to like worldwide objects like Linux and the VLC media player I was thinking about the other day or Wikipedia. It's like, okay, um, we can recognize each other through governance models and create objects which are not commodities, yet they have the power to disrupt markets. They have the power to <laughs> to and I mean, I'm thinking about Wikipedia because... Um, People often cite like, yeah, Wikipedia came along and it destroyed Britannica. So in a way, like it democratized the access to knowledge because if I didn't have the money back in 2001 to buy the 30 massive volumes of Britannica, I couldn't access that knowledge. But it also democratizes the production of knowledge because now I will add to that knowledge. And then I will enter, I mean, it's not perfect, of course, but I will enter a conversation whether my article is good, etc. But it does demo- democratize the, those processes. So that's, uh, yeah, that, that was an example to, uh, to think about why these things are really important. The etymology of commons is quite interesting. It comes from the Latin munis, which means both gift and responsibility. Now, gift and responsibility, if you think about resources, if you think about relationships, if you think about nature, is a totally different way of managing resources than the extractivist manner that we see in other systems. What happens to invisible labor? What happens to reproductive labor? What happens with the work that takes place in the home? What happens with voluntary contributions? We have to take care of all these people who are creating incredible value and not relegate them to constant precarity. There's no commons without commoning. It's the human interaction of the communities created around them and bring them to life. So a commons always has three components. A resource, a community that's gathered around the resource, and the protocols to govern this resource. P2P is a foundation I guess its purpose is what to to promote and and uh, spread information about people and places that are using all of these models. So, you know, Michelle or someone will go to or Ecuador or somewhere yeah. and work with the government on how are we going to create an information commons out of everything that everyone produces in our country. Yeah. We're an observatory, so we've been cataloging all these initiatives, but we also work on the narrative. How can we communicate this to people who may not necessarily have a political economy background because this affects them? We also do a lot of research. We have a dedicated research hub based in Greece called the Peer-to-Peer Lab. 
and it's great. And what they want to do is to empirically demonstrate that the stuff that Michelle talks about, that I talk about, you know, we give a presentation and people say, hey, that's really nice, but that's utopian. And then it's like, well, here's a 100-page research paper perfectly annotated that tells you that, no, this is happening maybe at smaller scales, but it is happening. And then we have, like, all these web pages, publications, etc. We're bringing out a new web page um, based on the publication that we did with TNI, the Commons Transition Primer. And... This was based a bit on a visual approach. I come from fine arts, even though I did drop out, and I'm a synesthete. And I remember, like, if you look up on, I don't know, Google Images, like the Commons and P2P, you will get the most boring imagery. And it's like, well, like, at least communism, like, had, like, some really good graphics. It's like, we have to do better. So this features a lot of hand-drawn art, and it features um, infographics, etc., but also video, also audio, because we want to be talking multimedia. And, of course, there's also a lot of text, and we worked really hard in the language to be accessible. Now, it's not the commons for dummies, because, again, the commons is complex, and people can handle complexity. People are not stupid. But we did want it to be a lot more inclusive. Well, people are are not stupid when it comes to real-world immediate things. If you take a bunch of farmers and put them in a room to talk about their water issues, all of a sudden they're pretty damn smart, right? Because they know where it's coming from and where it's going to and and how to apportion it. But with something like water, say, in America we tend, if there's a shortage of some kind, we privatize it. And I would think that P2P Foundation and those working with it are looking, okay, how do we strategize this differently? How do we, what, convince people that water could work as a commons rather than as some privatized thing? We don't have to sell, we don't have to bring Nestle or Vivendi or whoever it is in here to handle water for us. So what's the strategy? How do we go from, there are these articles on, on the website, there's this research, there's a paper, then if we're in a community, if I'm in Utah, Arizona, mm-hmm. or Venezuela, wherever, mm-hmm. and they're about to privatize the water system where I live, what's mm-hmm. what's the strategy? How do we? I mean, I know that's a big a big yeah, question, yeah. but what do we do? How do we convince ourselves and others mm-hmm. that this doesn't have to be this way? Okay, so with the caveat that you're talking about specific places that have specific circumstances, um, one of the first things is to show models. Um, there's the Water Commons in Naples. In the Switzerland cantons, the management of water has been operating as a commons for thousands of years, so these models do exist. These models um, are not based on profit. So it's not like Nestle will give you the water, but as long as it gets some payback, and then we'll see, and then like, hey, if these filters are too expensive, you know, that's not profiting the company, so, you know, like you, you person that drinks the water comes last. Um, when the state manages, it's like there can be unnecessary bureaucracy. There can be like power dynamics. It might be a massive state if you don't have a federal model like over here or you have something like more similar to Spain that's got no idea of the environmental and local conditions that affect that water. So who should have a say in that water? It should be the people that take care of it. And they're wise. And it's like, yeah, farmers get together. But then there's also this interesting process because this is not a utopian, a utopian scheme that I'm describing. When people get together to talk, they see the complications arise immediately because we are not educated to behave as commoners. We are not educated to cooperate. And this is, really, this is a really hard process. It's like you have, to, you have to go through this second adolescence to reach this maturity, to be able to compromise, to be able to listen to the other, to the various stakeholders. So yeah, it's, challenging. it's challenging, but I think that it's really enriching at the same time. And then how do we educate 
to be commoners. So we're trying to do a lot of things, but again, like you never know what will work. But um, I think that there's a few approaches because I think what you were alluding to is like, how do we make this more powerful? How do we make this more permeable or more more accessible to people? Or how do we make people demand this? So one strategy is, yes, at the policy level, and we do write policy and we are lobbying, especially in Europe, so more of this um, commons-oriented processes. Are and when you say lobbying, account. what does that mean? Do you go to a politician's office and say, you got to do this because of this and this? <laughs> there's, a, there's a group called the European Commons Assembly that arose out of a working group on the commons in the European Parliament that has made a few times and made a bunch of policies which need to be finished, finished, but you can talk to politicians and you can say, hey, you know, there will be politicians that are more amenable to this kind of things. And especially in Europe, like when you think like you got the Greens, you got the so-called new left like Syriza, Podemos or Labour now, and you also got the pirates, but they're not necessarily talking. And the commons is the glue that unites these things because it talks about hacking, it talks about open source, it talks about the environment, it talks about distribution, it talks about welfare that goes beyond laborism, it talks about enfranchising everyone. So there's a narrative over here that we're working hard on so it resonates, but not just appealing to power because you know there's this false dichotomy between prefigurative and the students like let's build you know the new world in the shell of the old right now like the industrial workers of the, of mm-hmm. the world and there's the institutional politics are like okay we'll take power and that will facilitate things you don't know what's going to work so you have to do both because the institutional level um, creates the space for you to be able to do these things so when you have a really horrible president like you have in this country right now suddenly you have a really potent rise in feminist ethics and practices and you have like really wonderful things happening because you feel the dwells encroaching and that's one type of reaction but if you have more space you have the material conditions to actually bring these projects into practice so both things are important both the small scale but what you may be doing in your farming community may be really useful in peru because maybe the machinery that you need to buy is only, you know, like done for like big industrial farms and you don't have the right machinery. Well, you can go to FarmHack, which is a platform where you can download designs and you can make them locally for small and medium scale farming. And you can build this. So we're operating over here in two levels. At the knowledge level, this kind of thing should be shared globally. Um, as Michelle says, you know, what is light is global, what is heavy, production is local. So we make this um, industrial machine yeah and then you pick it up in your small community and you make it better but you don't keep that to yourself because you're not designing for your profit you're designing for social use so whatever innovations you may have made gets put back into the design commons but then that's downloaded and fabricated somewhere else there's a french co-op called l'atelier paysan and they they do courses on like making agricultural machines and they actually, they're, they're actually a business. They live off that. But they don't live off holding the intellectual property to this new kind of machinery, which can actually benefit a lot of people who are producing the food for their communities. We have our priorities upside down. So what is scarce by nature, what we should be taking care of, which are natural resources, we're consuming them 60% faster that we can regenerate it. We're treating nature as if it was infinitely abundant. We have resource scarcity, we have environmental degradation, but the system goes on. Ironically, at the same time, what is naturally abundant and can be reproduced and distributed digitally at minimal cost, which is knowledge, 
it's been made scarce. It's been kept behind patents, IP, copyright. And the irony is that to, to heal the problem that we have with the resources and with the environment, we need all the knowledge. We need to open source those patents, whether it's in medicine, environmentalism, agriculture, etc. You know, the free marketeers believe that there won't be any technological innovation without a, uh, without a profit. Um, yeah, but that's bollocks. <laughs> I don't know if I can swear. So the number of patents went up um, fourfold since 1980, while total factor productivity, which is like the, the metric that measures innovation, has actually gone down. So when you think about stuff like 3D printing, when the patents expired, suddenly you have this 3D printing revolution. Um, this is a process that happens again and again. Information, or think back to our famous example of Wikipedia. It's like you free up knowledge and knowledge thrives. It generates absent a profit motive. And I guess as we move into an increasingly <laughs> jobless future, hmm. it becomes even easier to justify yeah. making making things for, for the good of it. Yeah, but again, these this are such complex issues. And um, it's not, okay, so we move into this anarcho-communist utopia and everything is decommodified. A commons is not a commodity. That is true. And, you know, you become this horrible word, a prosumer. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not just neat categories that capitalist gives you, you know, like you're a tax player, you're a politician, you're a consumer, you're a producer. No, you're someone who does a little bit of all these things. Uh, you're also a political subject. The good thing about all of... All of these processes are that you can, people can become enabled to do the things that really matter to them. So you would consider yourself hopeful about our uh, chances of species survival and civilization thriving forward. It's not deterministic. I think that we increase the possibilities of this kind of thing becoming true by amplifying these projects, by making them more visible, by doing more, more commoning. So before we were talking about, like, how can we create change? Is it, you know, in the small communities? Is it, like, at the, at the bigger levels? Well, that's, that's one way of doing it. But um, a lot of these changes, they're not born out of, you know, like, lifestyle choices, but survival necessities. So you have a lot of um, thriving innovation in these areas in the Mediterranean or Spain, where I come from, which was so hard hit by austerity and Greece because there's no other choice. So it's a survival necessity, and it makes people change. I'll give you an example, which is, it's not an apocryphal story, because even though I've heard it from many people, I think that this kind of thing like happened again and again. There's the anti-foreclosure movement in Spain, and in Spain the situation is particularly bad, because if you get a mortgage and you're not able to pay the mortgage, not only do they kick you out of your house, but as you're homeless or living in your cousin's house, you still have to pay the mortgage for the house that the bank has sold again. It's horrible. Uh. So there was a platform, Plataforma Afectado por la Hipoteca, that dealt with this, that welcomed people, that they gave legal advice. And actually, the spokesperson is now the mayoress of, of Barcelona. <laughs> so you can see where, where these political parties are coming from. And a friend of mine who works in Barcelona um, tells me, and I've heard this story, like, so Tuesday was when we welcomed people, and this guy came in crying, like, oh, they've kicked me out of my house, my, my life is horrible, I don't know what I'm going to do, and it's because of the immigrants. And then there was total silence in the room, like, oh, my God, like, who is this guy? What are we going to do with him? And then two months later, this same person was in the front line against the riot cops who were trying to knock down the door of the house of an immigrant that was being foreclosed. Why? Because this person 
had not been told like your stupid is your racist pig he had been listened to he had been accepted into a commons he had been helped by people and that changed them and i think that this is you know like you can't argue with someone politically who's got like a really set opinion or like you know i will try to outsmart you um that doesn't happen but when things collapse and where people are welcome it changes people and i think that's that's the other approach it's like we keep doing these projects because they raise the ground and i do believe that we're in a process of ongoing collapse and sometimes it's more visible sometimes it's less um occupy is dead but 2012 hurricane sunday comes along and who's first on the scene is it fema no it's occupy sunday oh but they were there no they were not dead they raised the ground for that collapse and it's not I'm not an accelerationist and I hope that everything collapses so the commons and P2P will become the new Germany no but I think that is the right work to do and you meet the best people you meet the best people and you create really good relationships and I think that at the personal level it's especially valuable well also because sometimes the thing that collapses is not the thing itself the thing that collapses is the structure around the thing that's been keeping us from accessing yeah. the thing yeah. you know so it's almost as if and it's a simplistic way of saying it but so the bank fails. Yeah. That means we get the money back. You know? yeah. <laughs> or we can look at North Dakota and say, hey, well, actually, well, a public bank may be a great idea. Right. Or maybe we have to do a mutual credit currency over here. And then, but this doesn't mean that, like, the bank suddenly, well, as in Spain and Europe, is rescued with, like, millions of taxpayer money. But if the bank is still failing or if the bank is thriving, maybe we won't. We want to, cre- to, to keep with our cooperative community bank. Because it works better. I mean, a lot of this happened in the uh, in the nineteen uh, twenties and thirties in the U.S. You know, during the Depression, we mm-hmm. developed alternative currencies and cooperatives and yeah. labor union. All sorts of things happened that uh, yeah. uh, people that were foreign to people. Before. The worst thing about the welfare state was the killing off of the cooperative Commonwealth. And the welfare state, you know, understood as like, whoa, Russia, um, you know, the Soviet Union, 1920, ooh, legal abortion, um, you know, women are enfranchised to vote, etc. So, so the welfare state is like this, like, okay, like, let's keep the commies away and, you know, let's, let's give something back to the people. But that was lost. This vision of the cooperative co- commonwealth of self-management was absorbed into the state. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a narrative worth going back to. And... It's, it's curious because the commons, we're talking about, you know, like the primitive commons as the de facto mode of like indigenous and social organization. But the commons predates capitalism. And like the commons kind of like ratifies itself legally through cooperatives. So, you know, you have like Robert Owen and the utopian socialists and they were coming from the commons and they were coming from the levelers and they were coming from like defending, they're defending themselves from enclosures, etc. And then when you talk about the 20s, you have like a lot of common in. We can see common in in this vision of the cooperative commonwealth. So like the commons like keeps popping up its head in time of crisis. And now that crisis has been globalized, maybe we can talk about a really strong commons movement. There's two billion people that derive their sustenance from natural resource commons, two billion. And we can assume that maybe there's a similar number of people co-creating shared resources in the internet, which we also classify as common in. We have the one billion people that work in cooperatives. So, I don't know. If we're talking about potentially half of the human population, this is a story worth telling. This is a mutual recognition worth harvesting and creating a counterpower with. Right. And the the greenhouse gases, uh, psychological, mental diseases, uh, uh, eco-waste... 
uh, slavery and footprint is probably much, much lower for that half the planet than the half a planet that's using uh, extractive capitalism. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know that just by looking at the <laughs> at the nighttime maps of the world, you know, with the small lights. Um, I think that indigenous people are 4% of the planet's population, but the lands that they steward, generally as a commons, hold 80% of the biodiversity. So there's a lot to learn from these processes. And of course, like indigenous people, like managing their resources is really diff- uh, different from an urban commons, but absent a profit motive, you're going to do things much more differently. And if you can find ways to spend your productive capacities, to spend your time, to make your hobbies into something useful, we may get out of this mess. And do you feel like these, uh, or you would have the evidence, are these commonses growing or being forcibly shrunk? So when I read about, you know, Monsanto, um, you know, going into India and taking the, you know, patents on seeds and ruining the biodiversity that has been passed on generation to generation to generation by the, uh, the seed commonses of India. It feels like, oh my God, they're closing in on everybody. Or is, is, are, are we succeeding and growing and spreading these models? Both. And um, both are happening at the same time. There was like mapping of the urban commons in both Amsterdam and Belgium going from 2005 to 2015 and the growth was exponential. Like you had the map and you can see the timeline and suddenly you can't see the dots. The process of enclosure, if people don't understand enclosure, it means like, so we have this resource or gift, if you don't like the extractivist um, connotations of the word resource, and are we going to exploit it for profit or is the state going to hoard it or is the community going to going to manage it? So this process of enclosure, of um, patenting, of like making making commons into commodities and turning relationships into into services has been ongoing all the time and will continue. In Spain, oh man, like we have the most backward government, um, there's a solar tax. So it's actually more expensive for you to have solar power and to give you a surplus to the neighbor than to buy from the big energy company because they see that this works. So where, where there's, there's abundance and abundance you can characterize as like self-production or... Um, great ideas that may be socially advantageous, someone will want to shut it down. Wherever there's a commons, there is someone drawing up plans to enclose it. But also as process and things collapses, commons emerge naturally. So it's going on at the same time. So I think we need a lot more awareness raising. Um, Like I was alluding to before, a lot more approachable narrative that does keep the complexity. Since 2008, we've seen an exponential growth in the number of P2P initiatives worldwide. And of course, a lot of these initiatives, they come up in reaction to something, to a systemic breakdown of the existing systems that we have. Maybe we can characterize as a system based in unquestioned growth. When we talk about P2P and the commons as a potential catalyst for systems change and due to the speed of communications today, we can see all these dots, we can see all these P2P practices joining together to create a bigger system. Think about politics. So if we talk about free and open, you have the pirate parties. 
if you talk about fairness, you have parties like Podemos or the Corbyn campaign, etc. If you talk about sustainability, you have the Green parties, but they're not necessarily talking to each other. We feel that the Commons is the glue that can hold these three types of movements in politics and in the markets together. Right. The thing I get upset about in the in the West or here in America is I don't want to paint with too uh, broad a brush, but um, those of us in the kind of progressive left who are promoting things like we're talking about here and yeah. P2P and all that tend to look at the kind of the red state Trump voters as too stupid to get this, as the enemy rather than looking at them as what they're voting for is actually in some ways no more distant from what we're talking about than us voting for neoliberals on the left, you know, for yeah. voting for Clinton or whatever. Yeah, for and, lesser and in a hands-on way, they've maybe without calling them that, they've been close to commonses. They've shared machinery. They've had meetings. They understand what and when to be into, into something together. So it's not... Uh, I think our sophistication about the global economic system is a very different qualification mm -hmm. than one's knowledge about how do we manage the soil right here in a way that's going to work for us rather than ruin our topsoil for the next thousand years. Yeah, but how about we manage the economy so we don't ruin our economic interactions for the next thousand years? So, so, so there's a knowledge exchange. When you talk about the rural areas, now that I live in a village, um, this is so important because, like you said, uh, these people, these other people are characterized as stupid. And what Trump did was basically go around the country and tell a lot of lies and say, but I love you guys. Mm -hmm. Ended up with, I love you. You are intelligent. Like Hillary saying that you're stupid. You are intelligent. And it's funny because in Spain, like the U.S., has the same like um, voting mechanism where the, the least populated or rural areas actually weigh more towards the elections. Mm -hmm. And they are closer to these practices. Like I say, my, I don't know, like the, the old guys that's keeping sheep in my village, he doesn't know about the work that I'm doing on the commons, but we're going to have a conversation. And they get it. They get it. So it's interesting if you go to the, um, to the livelihood commoners in India and you explain the commons as a social process. Okay? Not that this, this is the... No, no. It's a social process where a community handles a resource according to their own norms and protocols. So I say, so, okay, you person who's like um let's let's take some let's make some fun out of garrett harding so you're a person that has this field and like everything is actually going okay well these people doing things on the internet these hackers they're doing the same thing they're managing a resource according to the rules of their community so if we can extend this narrative and not just by repeating it and have people parrot it but by lived experience we may be able to create those synergies we may be able to contact those potential four billion people who are engaged in the act of commoning so it goes to finance so it goes to politics so it goes to this really abstract and disconnected notions that are still very much part of the fabric that keeps us together the commons can play with markets and with the state this is like another Another notion which is mistaken, even though it often thrives in absence of, because it's either invisible or it will be pillaged and extracted, it can work. And it can work, I mean, politically, like I told you 
um, in Madrid, Barcelona, Naples, Ghent. There's a lot of cities right now working with the urban commons and with citizen-led initiatives. Also at the state level in Ecuador, even though arguably that wasn't so successful, there was um, a project that Michelle um, took part on, which was based on the commons. And also with with economics, I mean, you've talked about platform cooperativism in the program, etc. The commons seen as a social logic runs through that. And I think that the, the good thing is that the commons also allows us to be less dependent on market and state because we cannot assume a totally stable, you know, um, um, social political groundwork. So it's a good thing that we that we can, we can have both. I mean, kind of in, in closing, I want to ask for the many people who, who listen to this show are a, a bit like me where we're comfortable in these virtual spaces and online mm-hmm. and intellectualizing about uh, the commons. And I think we're coming to realize that that's not enough anymore. You know, it's enough for some, maybe. You know, you need some people in, in universities speaking about these things. But people want to get their hands dirty and actually participate in uh, reestablishing uh, commons-ruled uh, uh, gifts. Hmm. So where, how do we, how do we start? How would you recommend, you know, the 20 something listener who's in a town and online, but knows that there's things going on out there and farmland and schools and where do you start? Do you find the others first? Do you figure <laughs> out what resource to use? Do you start by reading articles on what other people have done? You start, like you say, with Leary's dying words, <laughs> and you do find the others. And that's an important thing because it takes two to tango, but it also takes two to common. It needs You need to relate to people. And you can do this. This is such a personal question. I don't think that you can be prescriptive with this. And I think that you have to explore in depth what you want to do, what you think your unique talents can be applied to. And maybe it's digital. Maybe it is them white guys talking in a room and going on the internet. Or maybe it is relating to your community. A lot of it is more about listening than talking. It's about identifying. It's about seeing those patterns of commoning, which is the title of a book by, by our colleagues, in action and recognizing them, even if they don't call themselves commons. Maybe you want to join a fab lab. Maybe you want to join a protest movement. Maybe you want to do community-supported agriculture. All of these things can be seen as part of the commons on P2P. Maybe you see a spelling mistake in Wikipedia and you correct it. Hey, great, you've been a commoner for 50 seconds. Good, keep going. So there's, I, I think it will change you. Um, I started in this journey, Anne-Marie, my partner, and I as translators, and now we're organizers, and now we're writers. And we may go back to translate, to translating. So I think it's, it's up to what you want to do, and that may change. Maybe tomorrow you will run for office, or maybe you will be in a self-organized community that does not depend on the state. Hey, it's cool. I think that we need diversity of tactics. You need to try everything. And the other great thing about it is it's, um, I don't mean to belittle it by saying this, but it's just fun. It's fun. But you it's know? Dif- but it's dif- man, it's, it's not the tragedy, it's the drama of the commons. Yeah. It's incredibly difficult. It will make you question your identity and yourself, how you relate to it. You know, you don't have like easy set solutions. You have to negotiate everything. But that's the journey. I mean, that's, that's, that's why yeah, you're yeah, alive, yeah, right? Yeah. And it certainly is not artificial. It feels really, <laughs> it feels really real. And, and like I said before, you meet the best people. 
Cool. Well, Stocko, thank you so much for what you're doing. Well, thank you for having me, Don. You're on Team Human. Our guest today was from the P2P Foundation, Stocko Troncoso. We'll be back in the basement media squat here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Hello, Team Human listeners. This is Stephen here. Happy New Year, and thanks for tuning in for another episode. A special thanks to all of our new supporters who have chipped in via Patreon. Your support really means a lot and helps sustain us. I can't believe we're already at episode 68, and we look forward to many more shows in the new year. This show is a special show in that it featured musical interludes by our guest, Stocko Troncoso. Visit the episode page for this show at teenhuman.fm to find links to his musical work as well as the wealth of resources from P2P and Commons Transition. Also, as always, thanks to Discord Records and Fugazi for the music you hear in the intro and outro of the show. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.